Hello and welcome to the Conversation Weekly. I'm Ment Marwani in Medellin. And I'm Nihal Al Hadi in Toronto. Nihal, we're going to start our conversation today with a stat that I recently came across. So, according to a study that was published last year, for the first time since 2001, the majority of the world lives in countries that are classified as autocracies. Okay, so I'm quite interested in this because you think that, you know, with all the invasions that have happened over the last few decades, we would have ended up with a few more democratic governments. So how did we end up here? I know, right? Well, it seems more countries are probably joining that list very soon. So even countries that are considered long-standing democracies like G20 countries, so that's Brazil, India and the US, for example, autocratic trends are coming up. Is there anywhere that is becoming more democratic, maybe? So there is. In Latin America, the trend's looking a little bit different. Since the 1990s, countries in Latin America have actually been transitioning from authoritarian to democratic systems. And it's currently looking like there's a second democratic wave underway. And this is what this week's episode is about. Across Latin America, people are demanding greater inclusion and representation in politics. And some countries are responding by involving their populations in a democratic process. For example, Chile, where the government is looking to replace its current constitution. How do you even go about replacing a constitution? So I spoke to a researcher who could explain to us how Chile is doing that and what's at stake, and also what it means for the people who have traditionally been marginalized from politics in the country. But first, I reached out to someone who could give us a bit of context and history. Carlos Bernal, who's originally from Mexico, began his career researching and working in constitutional processes in 1991 in Colombia. My name is Carlos Bernal, and I am professor at the University of Dayton School of Law in the United States. I'm also a commissioner of the Inter-American Human Rights Commission. Colombia has seen its fair share of shakeups when it comes to its constitution. Its first constitution was put into effect in 1886, and it was characterized by conservative principles to reflect the influence of the Catholic Church in Colombia at the time. Then, in 1991, a reform movement led by students and activists resulted in the drafting of a new constitution. Activists demanded a secular constitution which would uphold the rule of modern democratic institutions, greater participation in the democratic process, and secure human rights to defuse the political violence that was characterizing Colombia at the time during the years of armed conflict. It was 1991 when I first began to attend law school back there in, in Colombia, and in precisely that year, we had a constituent assembly. That assembly was uh, empowered to draft the current Colombian constitution. And at the time it was decided that the process was going to be crowdsourced and inclusive. Constitutional crowdsourcing is what Carlos refers to as a process by which governments gather the opinions, views and demands of their populations in the making of a constitution. The basic idea is that in a democracy, everyone should have the chance to participate and define the institutions that preside over them. Of course, at the time, we didn't have the technology to do it via online, but the people who carried out, who led the process, would organize focus groups in universities, schools, uh, civil societies, organizations, to try to think about constitutional values, constitutional institutions, and with all that material, then the Constituent Assembly drafted the Constitution. I was very active 
when I began law school because that was a first opportunity to participate. I participated in the focus groups. I voted for the people who got elected to the uh, Constituent Assembly. And since that time, I was in love with constitutional law. And back in 2017, I was appointed as Justice of the Constitutional Court for Colombia. I held that position for four years. The 1991 Constitution is also known as the Human Rights Constitution. That's because it recognizes rights such as freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and freedom of assembly, but also economic and social rights. But Carlos says, constitutions have another role to play. Why are constitutions so important? Why should anyone care about the constitution? That's a great question and it's a difficult one to solve. Why do I say that? Because there are actually countries in the world in which if you read the constitution, you can think on the paradise. For instance, if you read the constitution of Venezuela, that constitution grants more rights to people than any other constitutions in the world. However, the reality is completely different. One, there is a huge distance between the constitutional text and then the constitutional reality. However, in most societies, what happened is the following. Constitution creates the political branches of government and empower those branches to do certain core things. As such, constitutions legitimize both legally as well as socially the rights of politicians to exercise power as representatives of the people. And that creates an expectations from the people to get that from the politicians. And uh, in societies in which uh, people take that promise seriously, and also they organize in civil society organizations, and also they have justices to enforce the constitution as law, like the US Supreme Court or the Colombian Constitutional Court, the politicians are held accountable. And for this reason, the constitution as a device is very strategic in achieving first the satisfaction of constitutional rights and second, limited exercise of the political power. That's the key point. And if that is taken seriously in a society, then the society is propelled to function in a fair way. Okay, so in a way you could say that it's the blueprint for what people should expect in a society politically and also where the limits are for politicians to act. Now, Latin America has seen intense periods of constitutional change since the 1990s, and countries have attempted to reform their constitutions several times. In some countries, that's been more successful than in others. Can you tell us a little bit about why a country would want to reform their constitution? Constitutions, they have to navigate a tension between stability and change. A constitution is a device that is designed to be stable, to create stability in the sense that it creates a framework of government that enables people to act freely and with certainty. This happens in every organization. For instance, if you have a group of friends in which you are committed to cook every week, you need some basic stable rules so you can exercise your freedom. You can know what to buy or what time to arrive, what is the leeway you have to act. We consider that a constitution is successful if that constitution can last on time. The U.S. Constitution is one of the most successful in the world because it's a, it's a constitution that has uh, lived very long. But he says, as societies change, so do the social and political values of that society. 
and this change can be a challenge to a constitution. In the US, for instance, the idea of slavery or the idea of equal treatment between people of every race and nationality and background. And not only that, but also technology changes. There are many constitutions in which, for instance, we have right now uh, rights to internet, rights to receiving electricity, and the constitutions, they have to catch up with that reality. If a constitution becomes stagnant in the past, that constitution is not relevant anymore. So the question is, how do constitutions adapt to reflect those shifting values and political expectations? The easiest way to do it is by means of legislation, enacting legislation, and second, by means of interpretation. This is the key way, for instance, in which the U.S. Constitution is updated. It's by means of the change in the interpretation that the U.S. Supreme Court performs in different cases. That is called informal constitutional change, which means a change in the meaning of the Constitution without changing the word or the text of the Constitution. But Carlos says, in certain instances, simple amendments of a constitution might not be enough to reflect those social shifts. There are given points in the life of our society in which the whole structure of the constitution, or even the text of the constitution, is at odds with the new realities of the society. And it is at that time in which several possibilities can arise. For instance, a revolution, like what happened in the Arab Spring in 2011, in which people radically disagree with the institutions that they had at the time, and they promoted a total change in constitutions. Similar happened in Brazil in the year 1988 or in Colombia in the year 1991. So when there is a big gap between the constitutional text and the constitutional reality, there must be a constitutional replacement or a revolution or something that can create a new institutional framework that is able to regulate the society. This is what happened in the case of Colombia. The constitution was a closed system that in reality only allowed for the participation of the two elite traditional parties because the legal spectrum was narrow, was closed to the traditional elites. This is what, according to some authors, explain why the Marxist guerrillas and other movements, they try to exercise or try to propose different agendas outside of the law, outside of the legal spectrum, because the legal spectrum was narrow, was closed to the traditional elite. In his work, Carlos has focused on democratic mechanisms by which constitutions can adapt to the changing needs of society. Let's think about that we live in a country, you and me, and uh, 20 million people more. Then uh, if we don't have royalty, that is to say a king that has the right to decide the institution, then everyone is and should be on an equal foot to participate in the enactment and the drafting of that constitution. Now, until the development of technology and uh, the idea that we can exchange large amounts of information in real time. How can we draft a constitution? And uh, there are several possibilities. One possibility that is the easiest is that all the citizens, we just vote once to elect some representatives and they do some work. And at the end, we vote 
to ratify or not to ratify the work that they put together. But representational processes don't always respond to the needs of the people they're supposed to represent. There can be a huge distance between our representatives and the people. And usually, all those representatives are the same politician or the same political parties that have actually private agendas linked to private powers or to families, etc. Sometimes they don't have the public interest as a priority in their agendas. And then the second point is that sometimes at the end, because of the complexity of a constitution, it's difficult to say that if the people voted and approved one whole piece of 300 articles. However, that was more or less the basic model that was used to enact constitutions until uh, one decade ago. In the case of Colombia in 1991, the government created the Constitutional Assembly, which included representatives from diverse political backgrounds, ethnic groups and regions. The Assembly was then charged with drafting a new constitution which was put to the people in a referendum when it was approved in the same year. So one thing that happened at the time is that the constitution for the first time was pluralistic in the way that everyone was allowed to participate. The political life was not reserved for the two main political parties, but every person from every community, every background, forming parties with any kind of ideology could participate in society, so democracy was enhanced. But beyond that, a constitutional court was created with the expectation that court would enforce a constitutional rights. So constitutions are important because ideally they should reflect the values, diversity and expectations of a population. And if you want constitutions to last, they also have to be flexible so that they can respond to social and political changes. That sounds like a pretty challenging and complicated project. Yeah, you're right. And Carlos did say that sometimes it's really hard to get people to want to participate actively in a democratic process and even to convince the public that a crowdsourced process is politically viable. Some people just prefer to have representatives that lead on their behalf. And to be honest, I don't blame them. It requires a lot of time to be actively so involved in democracy. And I'm guessing this is where Chile comes in? Now, Chile's constitution has been in place since 1980, when the military dictator Augusto Pinochet ruled the country. And since then, it's been criticized for lacking inclusivity of indigenous people and women, for example, equal access to essential public services, and also for concentrating power in the hands of the president. So, in effect, it reduces the influence of other democratic institutions. So how's Chile going about changing that? Well, the government of current president Gabriel Boric has led an initiative to overhaul and rewrite the current constitution. And so I reached out to someone who could explain to me exactly how the government has been trying to do that. I'm Jennifer Piscopo. I'm an associate professor of politics at Occidental College in Los Angeles, California in the United States. I'm interested in how democracies, especially Latin American democracies, become more inclusive, how they elect members of historically underrepresented groups, especially women. And so this means I look at elections, who participates in elections, the consequences of elections, and then I look at governments and the same questions. Who participates in government and why does it matter? During Latin America's democratic transition in the 90s, 
women, amongst other marginalized groups, played an important role in pushing for political change. So women were very active in the human rights movements that criticized the abuses under authoritarian governments. They were very active in the peace movements that really urged for an end to the conflict in Central America. Chile really exemplifies that story. Women human rights campaigners in Chile campaigned for an end to the dictatorship, but they made an important connection between democracy in politics and also democracy in private life. And so very famously, one of the slogans of Chilean women in that democratic transition was democracy in the country and democracy in the home. But she says when democratic systems began replacing authoritarian governments, there was a gap between women's roles as activists and in the democratic transition versus the kinds of opportunities they had in politics. And those electoral jobs became taken by men. And many women felt very frustrated. You know, they thought that their roles in the transitions should be better rewarded with opportunities to stand for office. In the founding elections in a lot of countries, what we call the first democratic elections after a transition, women won about four, five, six percent of the seats, right? Completely out of proportion in a negative way to their role in the transitions. As a result, Jennifer says women staged protests across Latin America to demand better representation and inclusion. And so Argentina became the first country in the modern era in 1991 to pass a 30% gender quota law requiring that all parties have women as 30% of their candidates. That's really remarkable. And very quickly within the 1990s and the aughts, most Latin American countries and other countries across the globe followed. And today we have 10 of all Latin American countries save Guatemala and Venezuela have quota laws and 10 of Latin American country laws actually have gender parity, which requires that parties run 50% women and 50% men as candidates. In Chile, however, things looked very different. So Chile did make some really important strides in the democratic era. The Chilean Women's Ministry, which would be an executive branch agency charged with women's and women's issues, known as CERNAM by its Spanish acronym, received a very important role in the executive branch and was in charge of some very important public policies around women's rights and gender equality. And of course, famously, Chile elected a woman president, Michelle Bachelet, right, who served from 2006 to 2010 and then again from 2014 to 2018. And ironically, though, Chile did not adopt a gender quota until 2014. It was one of the last Latin American countries to do so. But there was still ongoing demand for quotas in Chile, and they adopted their first gender quota of 40% in 2014 during Bachelet's second term. Chile is also a peculiar case because most Latin American countries did revise or rewrite their constitutions as part of their democratic transitions. Chile did not. So there was a constitution that was written in 1980 during the Augusto Pinochet dictatorship. And when Chile underwent its democratic transition in 1989, 1990, that constitution was largely left intact. According to Jennifer, this can be attributed, at least in part, to social anxieties around safeguarding the democratic transition at all cost. So moving slowly forward with democracy and not making too many changes, such as a dramatic rewrite to the Constitution that would perhaps bring the military back out of the barracks. So that 1980 constitution created a lot of challenges for Chilean democracy. And one of the challenges was that it created an electoral system. It, you know, it sort of gave an electoral advantage to the right and to right wing 
parties. So throughout this entire period, Indigenous peoples really continue to experience marginalization, racism, low quality of life indicators, low opportunities for socioeconomic mobility. Okay, then we jump to 2019 when the people demanded a rewrite of the constitution. Can you tell us what happened in the run-up to that? So all of this comes to a head in 2019. Bachelet is out of office. There's a conservative president in power now, Sebastian Piñera. And in October of 2019, his administration raises public transit fares by 30 cents. And so this might not sound like a big deal to outsiders, but for Chileans, it becomes the straw that breaks the camel's back. This led to widespread protests across the country. And protesters said, right, it's not 30 cents, it's 30 years, referring to almost 30 years of democracy, but they have not felt that their quality of life has improved. And what was remarkable about the protests was the way they united all of these different groups, feminists, pensioners, indigenous peoples, housewives, impoverished peoples, students, right? And at one point there were probably estimates vary, of course, but, you know, a million people marching the length of the country, which is huge for a country that has barely 20 million people. So Chile is basically paralyzed by these protests. Eventually, leaders of Chile's political parties and the protest movement came together in what was called an agreement for peace and a new constitution because it seems to be then that the only way perhaps out of this crisis is for Chile finally to rewrite its constitution and to try to establish a better framework for the kinds of equality and justice that protesters seek. And so thus begins Chile's very long constitutional process. The whole thing starts becoming rapidly very complicated, right? So this agreement for peace that's signed at the end of 2019 sketches out a constitutional process. We're going to call that the first constitutional process. So the spoiler alert is this first constitutional process doesn't work out. In 2019, Chileans voted in a referendum in favor of kickstarting the constitutional process. The first referendum on starting the process is convened under Piñera, and we have nearly 80% of Chileans saying, yes, start the process, we want a new constitution. Then, once the constitutional convention finishes its work, the voters will go to the polls again in a referendum to approve or reject the new constitution. The elections for the 155 delegates that will write that constitution also happen under the Piñera government. You know, in this tandem to this, there's a presidential election. And so as the constitutional convention is working, a new president, Gabriel Boric, is selected and he is from the left. Gabriel Boric was a former student leader in the national protests that took place in 2010. And as such, he supported the call for the constitutional process too. So the convention finishes its work with Boric now in office, they produce a draft constitution. It is the most progressive draft constitution we've ever seen, but in a complete sort of about face, a complete diminishing of the Chilean electorate's reformist spirit, that draft convention fails in the September 2022 referendum. We'll get into why this constitutional draft was rejected in a moment, but first, I wanted to understand from Jennifer what made this first draft so progressive and how exactly it achieved that. So there were various mechanisms introduced to ensure that the first convention would be representative and not exclusive. There were 155 seats, which is the same size as Chile's lower house. But for the convention, they introduced that 17 of those 155 seats would be reserved for indigenous peoples. 
they introduced gender parity, not just among candidates, but among winners. So Chile became the first country in the world to convene a constitutional convention where women held the same number of seats as men. So it was much more representative than the Congress because of the kinds of people that were given seats and that were given voice. Once the convention was elected, members of the public were invited to propose points for consideration in the constitutional draft. There was a citizen initiative process that was extremely open in comparative and global terms for the thresholds that would let an initiative come from citizens to be considered in the convention. And the delegates themselves that were elected were still elected in this moment where support among the Chilean population for a diverse and different form of leadership was very high. And so you really had a group of outsiders, newcomers, leftists, progressives, women, indigenous peoples writing that first constitution. And that's part of the reason that the content ended up being so progressive. For instance, sweeping rights for protection of the environment, for nature, recognition of Chile as a plurinational state with indigenous peoples with their own identities, languages, histories, and heritage. There were provisions for restitution for indigenous peoples who had suffered um, genocide and theft of their land. There was legal right to an abortion. There was gender parity for all organs of the Chilean state. There was an obligation for the justice system to consider gender inequality when passing sentences and decisions. And so, when the referendum was rejected in September 2022, many analysts were left speechless. But Jennifer says there had already been some early signs that the drive for a new progressive constitution wasn't going to be successful. This constitution, you know, once it went to the voters, right, it became very polemical and there were a lot of different layers to the conversation about it. You know, so on the one hand, we just lauded its progressiveness. But, you know, on the other hand, what my co-author Peter C. Novellis and I have pointed out in our various analyses is it wasn't so far out of lockstep with sort of a standard social democratic constitution. We do see other recent Latin American constitutions that have given broad rights and protections to indigenous peoples, to the environment, to women. And we do see those constitutions falling dramatically short in their implementation. And so the point from my view and Peter's view, when we've sort of analyzed this, what got lost in all these discussions was the idea of the constitution as an aspirational document, as a document that would provide future groups of activists, of lawmakers, a reference point and an opportunity to strive for changes. You know, the delegates tried to be clear that a lot of how this would work would have to get hashed out in the secondary legislation that Congress would write. And there were provisions in that draft constitution that obligated the state to fiscal prudence, that obligated the state to all sorts of controls, right? But those subtleties around a constitution as aspirational, the need for implementing legislation that would get further debate that nuance got really lost, right, in the political debate on the accept or reject referendum. Jennifer says part of why a large section of the public was so receptive to the media's rebuttal 
was that the public mood had shifted significantly since 2020 when protests were held. Now you're in 2022. You're not in 2019, 2020 anymore. Chile, like so many countries, is suffering an economic crisis, economic malaise, rising inflation, very difficult cost of living. And the right is able to take advantage of some of these challenges around the economy, around the uncertainty and around the fear that voters have about the economy. They take advantage of some fear mongering around immigration. Chile, over the course of the past years, has been experiencing immigration from Venezuela, from Colombia. And there is unfortunately a lot of extreme negative sentiments. And so this creates some a diminishing of the reformist mood of the electorate. And especially the provisions in the new constitution around recognition, rights, and restitution for indigenous peoples also become fodder for fear-mongering around the right. There are really sort of gross, offensive um, images, narratives that circulate on social media, and even to some extent in the mainstream media, that the new constitution will give indigenous peoples the right to steal the homes of non-indigenous Chileans, that indigenous peoples will live in an independent state within the territory of Chile. And so the right capitalizes on economic anxiety. It capitalizes on fears of the other, of immigrants, of indigenous peoples. And it runs this campaign about how, if it is approved, the constitution will be devastating for Chilean society as it is known. And that campaign is successful. And in the referendum, you have 68% of voters vote no. So yeah, the utopian vision comes crashing down. <laughs> but Jennifer says, although the draft constitution was rejected, the appetite for a new constitution didn't wane. And so then Chile says, well, we're not going to give up. The public opinion polls show us that about 67% of voters still want a new constitution. They just didn't like the draft the first convention produced. So then Chile launches a second constitutional process, which is where we are now. In March 2023, the government announced the second initiative. But the new draft is expected to be much more moderate than the first one. The process won't involve the same mechanisms for equal and inclusive representation of indigenous people. And... Rather than being led by a convention made up of the public, this time around it's led by three bodies, including a council of experts, 50 elected councillors, and what's called a technical committee for admissibility, which oversees the entire process. So this is a much more controlled process than the first one. It has a lot of checks and balances. And the last thing to say is that 50-member elected body that will take the draft from the council of experts the elections for that body just happened in the past two weeks. The right swept those elections, so they will have 33 of the 50 seats. There needed to be gender parity in the candidates and in the results, so there are women. But again, there's no reserved seats for Indigenous peoples. They get five months, so not only is this a much more restrictive process, it's a fast one. Because the first convention got 12 months, this newly elected 50-member body gets five months once they sit, which will be very soon. <laughs> once the elected councillors produce a new draft, the vote to approve or reject the proposed text will be held in December 2023. So there's been all of these different processes, and the second one is less inclusive. 
Now, irrespective of the outcome, what do you think we can learn from this experiment? Because really, it is an experiment in how to draft a new constitution that is more democratic. That's a great question. And sometimes it depends on where you sit. I think one facile lesson that I think would be incorrect to pull from it would be that the first process was too democratic and it was too inclusive and polities simply can't tolerate something that is so radically progressive. I like to hope to think that would be the wrong conclusion because the defeat of the constitution, yes, the critiques leveraged at it were that it was too progressive, it was too inclusive, it was too radically utopian, but the referendum happened in this context where everyday politics really got in the way. It was rising voters' concern about the economy, about crime, about insecurity. Right. We don't know in the absence of a right wing shift among the electorate that's responding to everyday political concerns right around the economy and crime would then maybe that progressive constitution have been more palatable. All of the polling data showed large majorities, 70 percent in support of things like rights and restitution for indigenous peoples, rights and protections for women. So the mixing of kind of the quotidian everyday politics, you know, the ups and downs of Boric's presidential approval, like any other president, got mixed into the constitutional process, right? The constitutional process became as much a referendum on Boric's current performance as a president as it did having to do with the content. There is an appetite for processes that are more open and more democratic. The challenge is, you know, electorates are fickle. (laughs) And how do you hold someone's attention and someone's preferences in a stable way as everyday politics is sort of pushing them around? Maybe a 155 member assembly dominated by the left wasn't representative, but it's not clear that people think a 50 member body dominated by the right is representative either. So I think it's part of a broader set of challenges for how do political institutions look like the people they're governing. People need to see that they are represented to feel like their institutions are delivering. When I spoke to Carlos, he echoed Jennifer's view and said, irrespective of the outcome, Chile's experiment should still be celebrated as an example of strengthening democracy. And he believes there are lots of positive lessons we can learn. I tell you one thing. Even if the outcome is that they won't enact a new constitution, that's quite positive. We need to observe all the complexities of the Chilean process. First, if you create a good platform, you can engage the citizens of your country and allow them to participate either by deliberating or by deciding on certain values, institutions, etc. concerning the drafting of the constitution. So... The idea would be to use crowdsourcing, that is to say, to make a call, an open call, I would say, to the citizens and residents of a country to deliberate or to vote in that within or during the process of drafting a constitution for the sake to create an amount of information that the constitutional drafting body should take into account to draft the constitution. And that would enhance democracy, empowers the citizens, and create more legitimacy for a final draft that can be polished by the constitution drafting body and then ratified by the people. Secondly, he says, by creating inclusive mechanisms in the constitutional process, 
Chile's experiment made people aware of their constitution and the rights they hold. They had a phase that was called the teaching of the constitutionario, constitutionary, to teach the people the ABC of the constitutional law. Then they had some online activities like voting for rights and institutions and values, and also offline activities like focus groups. And they teach the people what is a constitution, what are the institutions they are voting for, for instance, a parliamentary regime or a presidential regime, what kinds of rights there should be in the, in the constitution, how constitutional rights matter, whether judges should be involved in the enforcement of rights, those kind of questions, they need to educate the people. And by educating the people, this guarantees a better participation and also better legitimacy for the final voting or ratification of the Constitution. Carlos anticipates that new technologies will increasingly become part of the process and that, following the Chilean experiment, we're likely going to see crowdsourcing mechanisms being implemented elsewhere too. I think that politicians, groups, NGOs, and precisely minoritarian parties or people on the opposition, they will request and demand those processes of participation. Also, there is another good point concerning this is transparency. As a leader, if I want to be the leader of my country, I need to be transparent in the sense that I need to show what the people of my country want. I think that that possibility of connectivity of crowds, I mean of technology, and also right now, the possibility to analyze that big data very quickly by means of artificial intelligence is a wonderful tool to improve democracy. That's it for this episode. Thank you to this week's guests, Carlos Bernal and Jennifer Piscopo. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us podcast at theconversation.com. If you like what we do, please support our podcast and the conversation more broadly by going to donate.theconversation.com. This episode of The Conversation Weekly was written and produced by me, Ment Mariwani, and with assistance from our producer, Katie Flood. Sound design was by Eloise Stevens, and our theme music is by Nita Sal. Stephen Kahn is our global executive editor. Alice Mason runs our social media, and I'm also the show's executive producer. And I'm Nihal Al-Hadi. Thank you for listening. <laughs>